It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. That's what it sounds like when thousands of people watch other people play. And that's what we explore here on the special Press Play. It's all about how we play, why we play, what we play. And for this year's special, I'm taking you inside the world of competitive video games at a massive event in Dallas. We'll press play on that in a second. And also this hour, we'll play some bar trivia in New Jersey and then head to England to check out a patriotic American beer. But first... I'm at an event where people get paid to play. Almost a million dollars up for grabs at one of the biggest video game competitions and festivals in North America. Dreamhack, Dallas. The main game, the one that has thousands packed into this arena and millions more watching online around the world, is Counter-Strike Go. That's right, I'm here with thousands of people watching two teams of five play a video game with all the chanting and cheering and drama of a professional sports match. Whew, had to step outside for a second. It is loud in that main arena, but that's what I wanted to see firsthand, what I wanted to understand. I think we all know playing video games is fun, but watching others play? Why? You know, there's a, a, a millions of people will watch a baking show. But they don't Home do it together and scream when, like, the cookies come out of the oven. That's true, but uh, <laughs> but they do for sports. They yeah. do for competition. Mike Winnick is the hype man here in Dallas. Part rodeo clown, part baseball mascot. Getting the crowds going during breaks, launching t-shirts at them with the t-shirt cannon. And my in-game tag is Darf Mike. Almost everyone here has their real name, and then their on-screen name. Darf has no particular meaning, it's just a nonsense name he picked when he was 12. And it, it's funny how many people in this industry basically made their professional identity when they were a child. Mike is also a caster or esports broadcaster. Casting is the live commentary, the equivalent of, you know, your Joe Buck and Troy Aikman on a football game. The whole thing is as professional as any pro sports setup and broadcast, multiple camera angles, slick, highly produced packages and graphics. It's really impressive. It's not at the level of NBA, NHL, the World Cup yet, but we're getting there and we believe in a, in a couple of years we'll be the biggest sport in the world. A couple years? Five, ten years? Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me with the growth that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years. Growth is something Shaheen Zarabi knows a lot about. He's the VP of Growth and Strategy for DreamHack. DreamHack has two main components. A convention floor, which has the latest and greatest in video games, a King of the Hill area where they can challenge pros at everything from Street Fighter to Mario Kart and more, and win a thousand bucks. There's cosplay, an old-school arcade, an area where content creators broadcast. And then there's the pro gaming side. $930,000 worth of prize money being handed out this, this weekend. Wait, say, say that again? How much? $930,000, yeah. Counter-Strike Go is the biggest of these competitions. That's the one played in the arena in front of 6,000 screaming fans. The prize pool for that is 250,000, with 100 grand going to the winning team. Each team has five players, a mini military squad. One team is trying to set a bomb, the other team trying to find and defuse the bomb. Or they just try and kill each other. If you set the bomb, defuse the bomb, or kill the other team, you win the round. A match is the best of 30 rounds, and to win a game, you have to win two of three matches. I would say that the top players probably get between $300,000 up to one to two million dollars a year. That's Marco Pfeiffer, better known as Snappy, the in-game leader or team captain of the professional team 
Ants. And where did the name Snappy come from? To be honest, I just had to find a name. There's no real background behind it, sadly. So, uh. Snappy is from Denmark, and at 33, one of the older professional players. He played professionally when he was younger, but quit because at the time, you couldn't really make a living doing it. But then the money started rolling in a few years ago. So I quit my uh, master's uh, and I quit my job in the finance department in order to pursue gaming. And I've been doing it since 2016 now, I think. Yeah. When you quit those, uh, what did your parents say? They didn't care. as I think no matter what, I have enough to fall back on. So I don't think my, my mother was too worried. We were chatting just ahead of the semifinals, and his team, Entz, was making a good run. They'd survived several days of play at that point, coming off a disastrous experience. We had a tournament prior to this in Paris that was the World Championship. We performed well at the start of the tournament, but then we had a meltdown and we started playing super bad. So we sadly went out earlier than what was expected. Uh, so we want to redeem ourselves here. When that's happening and your team's melting down, as the captain, how do you motivate your team? Well, the thing was we had a big talk after the tournament in general about how we need to be as professionals. At that tournament, we weren't professional enough. We didn't prioritize stuff like food, sleep. We spoke a lot about how we can avoid that and how we need to be professionals at this tournament to perform at the highest level. I know, I know. Some of you might be laughing hearing him talk about being professionals and discipline and performing at the highest level. We're still talking about video games, right? But at the pro level, where millions of dollars are at stake, they have to be as sharp as possible. Their reflexes on point, because a couple of milliseconds could be worth thousands of dollars in prize money. I generally tend to play better when I go to the gym. That's one thing where you need the discipline. Then there's the other thing, which is just the food choices you make. I'm a guy that likes to eat a lot of bad food also, but I tend to on match days always to, to not uh, spike my blood sugar. So I try to eat according to the glycemic index in order to have a stable blood sugar and have enough focus for the game. So I don't uh, suddenly get, uh, what do you call it, um, brain fogs and stuff like this. And he's not just thinking about himself these days. His team depends on him. And so does his wife and one-year-old baby daughter. But his wife isn't here. She, she follows my game on the mobile phone, but she never watches them. She has no interest. The only thing she hopes is that, is that I win and that I'm happy, but she has no interest in esports. Is that okay with you? That yeah, she I, I actually like, like it that way also because sometimes when I spend so much time on my profession, it's also nice to sometimes just get home or like get out of the office and just not talk about it anymore, you know? Because for Snappy, turning pro meant taking something he did for fun, playing video games and made it into work, which changed things for him. I don't play the game as much for fun anymore. I play to compete at this point. I think it's fun competing. I think it's fun chasing uh, a dream um, in a way. I don't do it as much for the love of the game as I used to do. You're not going to have high motivation every day, so therefore you need some goals that you want to chase, and that is what keeps you going. What, what's your goal? What are you chasing? Uh, like last year, we were number two in the world. My goal is to be the one, number one team in the world and also win the big trophies. Um, they have eluded me. Uh, we were in three or four finals uh, within the last 18 months, but we lost all of them, sadly. And now we're in the semi here, and I hope we'll get a trophy. Where are the women? When women, when young girls go on the line and play, People are very offensive against them. That's Shireen Zarabi again, the VP of Growth and Strategy for DreamHack. One thing you quickly notice when you look at the teams competing in the main tournament, it's all guys. Not one woman is on that main stage playing in front of thousands of fans. But why? 
Men have no inherent advantage when it comes to video games. On the convention floor, Zarabi told me it's more about how women and young girls have been treated historically when they get into gaming. They receive a lot of toxicity, a lot of offensiveness, a lot of harassment, and that basically tightens the pipeline of women and girl players coming into gaming. Who would want to keep playing if they just get yelled at all the time or get sexually harassed all the time? Um, my name is Munira Adobe, but I go by Goose Breeder, and people call me Goose in the gaming community. Goose is one of the top women in the pro gaming world, telling me she's experienced that harassment firsthand. Of course, it's just not fun, right? Like you, why would you keep doing something that people are making miserable for you? Like it's it's an added barrier, and I think that you could play the card. Everyone says like, oh well, everybody gets talked on the internet but it's it's different like women are getting harassed specifically about their gender it's over and over it's that they're a woman they're a woman you're not good enough so esl the group behind dreamhack launched esl impact as a way to give women a safe space to play esl impact created an initiative and created a consistent structure to encourage uh, women to stick with the game um, teams to stick together so with that kind of stability i think is creating a lot of growth it's improving the players, creating competition, everyone's taking it seriously, and that's how you improve the community. The ESL Impact Counter-Strike Tournament here at DreamHack has a prize pool of $123,000, which is about half of the main stage tournament. The crowds watching are smaller too, but they're fierce and loyal, including Lisa. She's the mom of one of Goose's teammates, Mads. This is the second time we've been to Dallas. Uh, we've been to Sweden, to Sporter in Sweden. Um, so like they're soccer moms, you're a video game mom. Right, I'm a video game mom. <laughs> has your daughter faced bullying online or anything like that? She has. She has some here and there, some bullying. Um, How do you deal with that as a parent? Well, I try to tell her, you know, that she just has to ignore it. Uh, like block them, just block them, you know? And Goose says it's just a matter of time before women and men are playing together on the big stage for the big money. I do think women are capable of, uh, at one point in time, getting to that level. Um, I, I don't think it's like women can't compete, women can't play the game well, you know, but I just think we're a bit behind. So I, I think we're playing catch up. What is your favorite thing about playing this game? Um, I just like that I'm really good at it. I, I just like playing high level. It's just like a challenge, and I think being able to rise to the challenge is a very sweet feeling. Also a sweet feeling, Lisa's pride in watching her daughter Mads on stage in front of hundreds of cheering fans playing video games professionally. Oh, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming pride, you know? It's like, it's a bring you to tears kind of pride, you know what I'm saying? So, and I think it's because I see her following her dream and I see her pushing herself and then not letting anybody tell her she can't do that. But yeah, it, it, it's a like an overwhelming amount of pride that I have. Back over in the 6,000 seat arena, Christopher Nong's team, Mouse, they're in the finals. His gamer tag is Dexter. He's the team's in-game leader. Did you sit down your family at some point and say, okay, I'm gonna go into competitive gaming? Was there like a conversation about that or? Uh, there was some moments where I, I uh, told my mom because I come from a Vietnamese background. We're very like anti-gaming, um, so. But then yeah, I, I talked to her and she was like, "Okay, as long as you finish your university degree, at least you have something to fall back on. Um, then you can do whatever you like. She doesn't care." Uh, have you thought about what you would do with the money if you guys won? Um, 
No, for for me, I'm I'm, I'm the, one of the older guys on this team, but I would just uh, invest it in my home, get a home, and all that kind of stuff. Old people type things. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? Uh, turning 29. Oh my God, that's ancient. Yeah. <laughs> is there security in this? Do you think you can do this for the next 20, 30 years? Or is there a feeling like I've got to save up now because I don't know what the future might bring? Uh, for me, it's always saving up. I think all these other, my teammates, they have at least 10 more years like in this game, right? So by then they'll be millionaires. What's your favorite thing about playing this game? I would say the the hype moments when you when you do something crazy and it just works. And everyone gets to see that. And then it's on social media. It's uh, it's right in front of you. People yelling and screaming. It's like a great experience. Is it is it like a high that you're chasing? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like a drug, I guess. <laughs> um, and like having all the like fans and stuff like that. Do they come up to you? Do they like take pictures? Like, what what's the interaction like with with these fans? Uh, I would say in America, everyone's very uh, nice. Americans are very nice um, and outgoing. So everyone just comes up, says hi, cheers, cheers me on, and uh, yeah, ask for photos, signatures, whatever, and then we just go from there. Is it different in different parts of the world? You say Americans are nice, or like other? I would say you're just more outgoing, so it's uh, like that. But then, yeah, in Europe, everyone's still nice, but they're more reserved. Yeah, a little bit more reserved oh. usually. I. And so excited, I cannot even, it's words cannot describe how excited I am. Quentin is one of those less reserved American fans. He's 19 and rooting for the team Ents. Remember, we talked to their team captain Snappy before the break. My goal is to be the number one team in the world and also win the big trophies. Um, They have eluded me. Quentin is holding a poster with a drawing on it, a poster I didn't quite understand. And it shows, um... My interpretation, the Ed's logo, it's a big octopus guy, and it's ripping the face logo in half, and it's crumbling away, just like their team. What? <laughs> Where do you get all this enthusiasm from? Lack of sleep. Maybe. <laughs> I was up at 4 a.m. making these posters. Brew is part of Quentin's squad. What's your favorite thing about being here? Honestly, just being with other people like me. I come from a very small town, and... Uh, gaming and being on a computer for long periods of time is frowned upon. And watching people play games, does that like, that gets you excited? Yeah, I grew up in a sports family. This is different. I can watch this all day long. Like, I understand why my dad watches football all day long. This is what I do. We were watching Ents battle one of the most popular teams in the world, FaZe Clan, for a spot in the finals, and it was intense. It took several hours and five overtimes, but Entz finally got the job done. That puts Entz in the final Sunday with team captain Snappy. My goal is to be the number one team in the world and also win the big trophies. Um, they have eluded me. Against Mao's and team captain Dexter. How old are you? Uh, turning 29. Oh my God, that's ancient. Yeah. <laughs> but Entz and Snappy were just too strong. They have done it. Revenge on the tour. Dexter tries to belong, but it's nerds so short on that headshot. And the lone Australian has brought Mouse so far, but this is the end of the road. Yeah! And back and a year later, and they have Our fan friends we met the night before losing their minds. Three words. Easy. Four. Eight. Let's go! Let's go! In-game leader Snappy and his team winning $100,000 and that big trophy that had thus far eluded him. Yeah, we did it. It was uh, well amazing to take home the trophy after the last year uh, losing in the final. 
How are you going to celebrate? I think we'll celebrate with um, some some beers, maybe some wine, some good food, then relax and uh, just enjoy it. I don't want to get completely wasted. I want to actually enjoy this moment. So, uh, yeah, that's the plan. And then it's on to the next one. The winners of IEM Dallas are automatically qualified for the ESL Pro Tour Championship in Cologne, Germany in August. The biggest Counter-Strike GO competition in Europe. Prize pool, a million dollars. Not bad for a bunch of guys who get to play for a living. You're listening to Press Play from ABC News Radio. For three points, the question is, what's the name of a game that requires a deep knowledge of highly useless information, a willingness to partake in a pint or two, and zero athleticism? If you wrote down bar trivia, then perhaps you and ABC's Sherry Preston should team up. She's been checking out the pastime's recent resurgence at her local pub in New Jersey. Obel's Inn has been a part of Broad Street in Bloomfield, New Jersey, for as long as most people can remember. My name is Ken Janes. Um, my family's owned Obel's for 40 years. They bought it when I was five years old. Like most bars and restaurants, the pandemic hit Obel's really hard. It was terrible, <laughs> is what it was. It was pretty much just taking a beating every day because you didn't know what was getting thrown at you and, you know, couldn't open it all to 25%. And it just, you know, you, you can't, it, it's just, it's almost impossible to, to be able to keep a business going like that. Eventually, Ken and his wife decided they'd have to close their beloved bar. But then something happened. The, the day that we shut down, uh, the next morning, my wife actually woke me up and she was on social media and looking at, she was looking at everybody's, the outpouring from everybody, just saying, you know, you, you can't close, you guys have to stay open. And, uh, you know, I looked at her and I said, we're, we're just going to, we're going to keep going. It was tough, but they did keep Obel's going. And when they reopened for good, bartender Heather Vittori says things had changed. I absolutely did notice a difference in Obel's. I, you know, we experienced um, a whole new group of faces. A lot of new people moved into the area from the city. I noticed more families starting to come back in. After being alone for so long in the pandemic, more people than ever wanted to see each other face to face, but they didn't necessarily just want to go to a bar and drink. And bars were having a tough time getting a full house on nights that weren't weekends. So the suggestion was made, why not try trivia? I had no idea myself what a following trivia has. <laughs> I was, I'm quite flabbergasted by it every week, the amount of phone calls I get throughout the week and then setting up so that everyone can be a part of it. You can find bar trivia all over the country in big cities and small towns. Come to Obel's on a Thursday and this is what it'll sound like. Good evening, one and all. It's Thursday evening at Obel's. And as those of you know who've been here before, it's time for Joe Trivia. Thank you. That is Christopher Chasse. He's the one who reads out the questions, and he's been into trivia since he was a kid. I liked it when I was in middle school. Um, I, I knew a lot of things. I got a lot of questions right and earned a nickname, Human Dictionary, because of it. That and my love of big words. 
Chris started hosting about eight years ago for a company called Joe Trivia. They charge bars a flat fee, and for that, the establishments get a host and an evening's worth of entertainment. Smartphones to look up the answers are strictly not allowed. Another Obel's bartender, Mikey, says Trivia Night may be his favorite of the week. I know who the teams are because they always have the same team name, or they always um, make a team name that caters to me or the other gentleman that I'm bartending with, JP. Question number one. Sweet 16, Elite 8, and Final 4 are all terms that relate to... Basket basketball? I think that's right. College basketball. Shh. Don't tell anyone. Write it down. Question number one, the category is sports. Sweet 16, Elite 8, and the Final Four are all terms that relate to what? That would be March Madness. March Madness. Folks! We've got it wrong. Okay, so sports, clearly not our forte. According to one of the many bar trivia providers out there, Last Call Trivia, there weren't really any organized games until the 1970s, when a couple from England, Sharon Burns and Tom Porter, founded a quiz league and went from pub to pub, marketing the games as a way to bring in more customers on slower evenings. They called it Pub Quiz. The board game Trivial Pursuit and the game show Jeopardy helped it spread to the U.S. And after the pandemic, even more bars tried it out. Question number two, the category is science. Thank you. Science. Stratus, cumulus, and cirrus are the three basic type of what? Satellite radio. Clouds. What? Clouds. Cloud? Clouds. Stratus, cumulus, and cirrus. Two of those are radio companies. Yeah, but they're... They're types of clouds. Now, with all due respect, two of those, Cumulus and Cirrus, or rather Sirius, are radio companies, but the answer was clouds. Obel's owner Ken James says Trivia Night is not just entertaining, it certainly helps his pub's bottom line. I uh, honestly did not expect it to work out as well as it is. I was here for the first night and I had a blast and it's just it's been great ever since. It really has. Maybe because of customers like Travis Lands, who's a regular on Thursday nights. Almost every week I come on down as soon as they started doing it and uh, I play with Joe who you know we just kind of sit next to each other and mumble answers and that's how it started. We didn't we weren't playing we would just answer the questions and suddenly we were like well maybe we'll just put in the answers and see how well we do and we don't win, but we have a good time. <laughs> I asked Chris, the host, the same thing. What's the appeal of all this? I guess, um, again, this is me personally speaking. I guess there's always, like, the appeal of learning something new. Like, you'll learn a question, like, uh, who, who shot the Archduke of Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1914 and kickstarted World War I? And it'd be like, oh, this Serbian guy, Gavrilo Princip. That's just a question I pulled out of my nose. <laughs> I guess for me personally, it would be like... The appeal of like, wow, I never knew that. And that is something that Heather also says about her job. Part of the bar business is if you know customers and stuff like that, or bartenders, everybody has useless bits of information that they know. It's a, it's a, the trick is you know a, you don't need to know a lot about any one thing. It's always nice to know a little something about anything, <laughs> and that applies to trivia. So, if you remember the question for three points, what's the name of a sport that requires a deep knowledge of highly useless information, a willingness to partake in a pint or two, and zero athleticism? Yeah, it's bar trivia. 
And if you ever find yourself in Bloomfield, New Jersey on a Thursday night, maybe stop in at Obel's for some ribs and a question or two. On this and every 4th of July, a lot of people's chosen way to play is by doing nothing, kicking back and enjoying a nice cold beer, maybe even one that they brewed up themselves. And if you're an American living abroad, it can be hard to catch those red, white, and blue vibes. But ABC's Tom Rivers found a taste of home a few miles outside of London. Yep, that's right. There are a few of us out there. Around 10 million Americans live and work overseas like me. I've been based in the UK for decades among some 170,000 other Americans here. For those like me, there are fond memories of 4th of July's past back home, of parades and fireworks, of food and beer. So where to go in Britain to rekindle some of those memories? A few weeks ago, I went down to the Thameside Brewery and Tap Room to watch the process begin of producing an American-style craft beer, aptly named Born in the USA. As I arrived, the team was already hard at work mixing ingredients. Thameside owner and master brewer, Andy Hayward. This is the uh, first part of the process, yeah, we're, we're mashing in now. So we've already done a preheat of the mash tun just to get the temperature right. Uh, we are, uh, the brewing liquor is heated up the night before. We're transferring that into the, the mash tun and we're adding in the grain, uh, which will uh, mix with the water, extract the sugars uh, into what's called wort, uh, which is the basic sugar, sweet sugar, uh, syrupy, um, mixture, which is what later becomes alcohol, that the yeast works on to, to become alcohol. The microbrewer is located just some three miles from Heathrow's Terminal 5 in the river town of Staines-upon-Thames. It was the, was the end of the tidal river Thames before any of the locks were, and river management system was put in place, so, so the, 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 the tide finished at Staines and uh, therefore it was easier to cross um, and as you say the Romans built uh, I think Ad Pontes was the, the Roman name, and Staines came from the Saxon word uh, for stones, which was a crossing, uh, which came later, obviously. The town's brewing tradition can be traced all the way back to 1796. But there was a large gap of some 80 years until Andy opened his doors in 2015. And for him, there's an American connection. I, uh, I had a career in insurance uh, claims. Uh, I worked in Lloyds of London and, and other companies. Handling, always handling American uh, insurance claims. And uh, as you say, Tom, I was based in the States a couple of times. I lived in uh, Philadelphia for three years and Chicago for three years. Um, and even when I was back in London, I was traveling to the US many times a year uh, on audits, uh, etc. So I have a great love of America and, uh, and uh, the history over there. From a hobby to today, a seven days a week living. Well, I started home brewing back in 1978. So only commercially I've been brewing for eight years but but for a long long time um, uh, as a home brewer as a hobbyist um, and that time uh, you know the wages weren't good the beer was expensive the beer was bland and I figured I could make a better pint of beer for a lot less than I could pay for a, a bad pint of beer so I started brewing in my kitchen I then got uh, relegated to the shed and uh, and uh, it moved on from there. If you're of a certain age, you'll remember how groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones took American music, recycled and repackaged it, and sent it back to the States. 
Well, it's kind of the same process, only in reverse. Well, as I mentioned, I, um, I spent some time in America and uh, actually I brewed when I was living in America because again, when I first moved there, it was 1984. So it was, uh, it was the early days of, of uh, good beer uh, being rediscovered worldwide, but that kicked off really in America. I mean, in England, we had, we'd forgotten our tradition of, of good beer. Um, things coming from the war to um, difficulty in getting ingredients, so our IPAs had dropped down. Um, typically, in the older days, IPAs were stronger and very hoppy, which allowed the beer to, to make it round the, the, the horn for the, the troops in India. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, a style that was created for a particular market. and. The American uh, pioneers, and there was Fritz Maytag from Anchor Steam Brewery, there was Ken Grossman from Sierra Nevada, there was Jim Kosh from Samuel Adams. All these guys actually rediscovered decent beers and we followed that. Uh, America led the world in rediscovering craft beers or, or reinventing, I suppose, in a way, hoppy craft beers. And uh, I like to think of it as the opposite to music. John Keeling, who's the head brewer at Fuller's, uh, once said to me, it's the opposite of of music. I mean, the blues have been uh, not really remembered or, or been ignored in America because it was a different style of music that people were used to. And it's the same here with brewing. We'd forgotten what our, our beer history was like until until you guys showed us what it was. And, and now in this country and around the world, you can get very good, um, highly hopped and quite strong IPAs, which is Again, going back to the original style. Hayward typically has around 10 of his locally produced beer varieties on tap, including his American craft beer. The art is, is messing around or playing with or, or experimenting with hops. So over the, the last uh, couple of decades, American hops have come into their own, um, come to the fore, and high alpha hops, um, which is what gives you the, the flavor and the bitterness. Um, have been a speciality of the northwest of the USA. Uh, so the Yakima region, Yakima Valley of uh, Washington State uh, is where a lot of our hops come from. So if I'm producing an English bitter, then I'll obviously go with English Fuggles and Goldings. If I'm producing an American style, I'll go for the highly hopped uh, Chinook or Columbus or Citra that come from the uh, American Northwest. Three weeks after my initial visit, I'm back at the brewery and born in the USA is now being poured out by hand pump in the taproom. Time to see what the locals think of this brash American alternative. It's good, it's real good. I'd say it's a smoother pint, taste-wise. It just feels like it's more refined, lighter. It actually tastes like it's been made locally as opposed to being made mass-produced and commercially and bland, I guess is the word I'd use, but <laughs> the people that spend a fortune trying to sell those beers wouldn't appreciate me calling it bland, but this actually has a distinct taste. It feels like it's been made with care, I'll say that. Like, time has been put, time and effort has been put into making this specific beer. So, a couple of converts to this American-style IPA brewed right here in jolly old England. As to the next few days, Andy Hayward has a few other American tricks up his sleeves. The barbecue, American-style barbecue, uh, as you say, hot dogs and, uh, and burgers and stuff, as well as uh, uh, we have uh, a band that, that plays a lot of country and Americana-style music 
they'll, they'll be performing here. A slice for me and others of America at this time of year over here. And here's to raising a patriotic fight to all of you across the pond. At the Thameside Brewery, Tom Rivers, ABC News, Stains-upon-Thames, England. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. Thanks for coming to play with us. Every year on Press Play, we take a look at the different ways people are playing, what that means to them, how they define it. For some, the best way to play is by rocking out at the Eurovision Song Contest. We'll take you to London to hear about that. Others are dramatically speeding up the game of golf or cracking and bamming some mahjong. We'll hear about all of it, but first, the way many of us like to play has to do with the TV shows we love to watch. Trekkies have a deep love for Star Trek, and in one small town in upstate New York, ABC's Dave Packer has the story of how one man's hobby is fulfilling his own fantasies and helping to revitalize his beloved downtown. How to get people back downtown. It's a question that so many communities across America have been asking. What's really needed is some outside-of-the-box thinking. Or in the case of one upstate New York town, some out-of-this-world thinking. Welcome to Ticonderoga, New York, where on any given day you might find an occasional Starfleet lieutenant, pointed-eared Vulcan, or Klingon dressed for battle. You see, Ticonderoga, in addition to being written on the side of your number two pencil and being home of the 18th century fort of the same name, is home to the Star Trek Tour, a museum-quality, exact reproduction of the set used during the filming of the original series more than 55 years ago. And ever since this attraction opened, thousands from around the world have made the trek to this remote town about two hours north of Albany, New York, to become fully immersed in the Star Trek experience. And since it opened, this trek mecca has helped push the local economy into warp speed. It's it's really snowballed. The town, I think, really uh, kind of depends on it as an anchor for the downtown. That's Ticonderoga native James Cauley. It's all his brainchild. Well, it started for me as a hobby. Years ago, Cauley inherited a copy of the blueprints of the sets from the original series. He and his friends got to work. Inside a former vacant supermarket in downtown Ticonderoga, Collie and his friends, many volunteering their time and talent, rebuilt every inch of the sets depicting the Starship Enterprise. And they've opened it for tours. Look at the buttons, please don't touch. We have a lot of vintage items. It takes a lot of vintage stuff to build a Starship of the future. From sick bay to the massive engineering set to the ship's iconic bridge, walking onto this set makes you feel like you're speeding through the galaxy at warp eight. And when fans walk through the sliding doors, they walk into the future. And at the same time, back to their childhood. 
We met Gary and Adrian French, who came up from Connecticut. Adrian was... Overwhelmed. It was so realistic. And at the end of the tour, on the bridge, Gary got to sit in Captain Kirk's iconic chair. Well, I just wanted to take the chair home. <laughs> I needed to go in the living room. That's, that's how I... Julie Mum came along with her husband, Anthony, who made sure he wore the right color Star Trek uniform. Yeah, if you were an extra in a red shirt in the original show, is you knew you weren't getting out of the episode alive. So you made likely. sure you did not wear a red shirt when yes. you came here today. Yes. And it wouldn't be the Enterprise without Captain Kirk. So, twice a year for the past few years, William Shatner has been making the trek to Ticonderoga to greet fans, give them a personal tour, and regale them with tales of his time in the captain's chair. So what does he think of this museum-quality reproduction? This set is exactly the way it was uh, 50-odd years ago. And, uh, and it's like coming back to a house that you might have been born in, and you go look around, and you see it like, wow, it's bigger and smaller than I remember. And yet it's the same. Right inside the front door, Sue Cross greets visitors. Where's the furthest anyone has come from? Uh, oh, we've had them from all over the world. Okay. Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Um, yep, England. I mean, we had a group of business people from Japan fly in just for this. They flew into New York City, got a rental car, came up here, did a tour, went over to Burley's Luncheonette, had lunch, come back, did another tour, and then got back in their car and went back to, to New York and flew back to Japan. In one day? In one day. <laughs> They needed warp drive. Yes. Or maybe a transporter. Right. <laughs> and how's all this been going over on the planet Ticonderoga? It's a huge influx. We double our population when he has a major event, which is not hard because we're just under 5,000 people. That's Mark Wright, the Ticonderoga town supervisor, or what a lot of towns would call the mayor. We'll double our population. The businesses are inundated, um, food, lodging. And right across the street from the Star Trek tour, Burley's Luncheonette. Debbie Barber is an owner, and when the Trekkies come to town... We're extremely busy. We usually have lines out the door. It's definitely increased the business downtown. A few doors down at the House of Pizza, owner Eric Munson serving those Trekkies by the slice. Yeah, we can barely keep up. And back at the Star Trek set, James Cauley, the man who sent Ticonderoga where no town has gone before. So I'm on the bridge, and you can probably hear it right now, some of the sounds of the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. I mean, every light is blinking and the screens are lighting up and, and there's Captain Kirk's chair about three feet away from us. And right in front of me, about one foot away, is James Cauley, the guy who made this all possible. And how did this all come about? Well, it started for me as a hobby. I grew up watching, you know, Star Trek and running around the neighborhood playing with my friends, you know, dress up Captain Kirk and blah, blah, blah. So as an adult, I wanted to find a way to, to enjoy it getting away from work. What, what, you know, it was still my hobby. And I knew that if people were going to see it, it had to look right. And it just kind of grew out of that. And then a few years ago, about seven years ago, uh, I had a conversation with uh, Paramount and CBS. And they you know, agreed that this was something very, very special. And, and we got a license agreement to open to the public. And it's now a museum. Uh, for people to come and enjoy. We also have, thanks to um, Adam Schneider and Space Center Houston, we have the original Galileo 7, the full-size ship that they used when they filmed the series. So that's going to be on display very, very soon. Schneider's happy with the shuttlecraft's destination. It is a small town on a beautiful lake, so there's summer tourism, but there is not a lot of industry or other activity there in the town itself. This is a draw over the course of a year of tens of thousands of fans 
who need to stay, who need to eat, who would like to shop, and who would like to explore the area. And the people that trek there, inspired by the enduring message of Star Trek. It isn't about being lost in space. It isn't about people from long ago and far away fighting with each other. It's about, in theory, us. It's about what we might do. It's about what we might find. It's a positive, uplifting message. And if that positive, uplifting message helps the town of Ticonderoga, so be it. That's fantastic. From Ticonderoga, New York, or the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, I'm Dave Packer, ABC News. For many people, golf is a way to relax, a way to spend four or five, maybe seven hours with friends, possibly having a few drinks, definitely a few laughs, and slowing down the world. But an emerging trend in golf goes against all of that, and it's growing in popularity. The goal is to play as quickly as humanly possible and to get in a full workout while doing it. It's called speed golf, and our Alex Stone got a chance to experience it, along with all of the out-of-shape pain that came with it. Those birds chirping are the birds you hear before the sun rises, the ones that are out long before there's any sunshine to play a normal round of golf. It is just before 5 a.m. I'm pulling into the parking lot here. The birds are already singing, and the course is pitch black. In about 15 minutes, this parking lot will come alive, full of a group of what mostly look like marathon runners rather than golfers in full workout gear. There is actually in the darkness, a coyote right in front of me right now, running in front of my car as I'm pulling into the golf course. That tells you what hour it is. There's a coyote. But within a few minutes, the grounds crew arrives and gets to work, and then the golfers, or runners, or Ironman competitors, but yeah, they'll tell you they're golfers. Garland, how you doing? These are speed golfers meeting up in the parking lot, taking part in a form of golf exploding in popularity around the world. Think of it this way. An entire 18 holes of golf on this course in L.A. is about four and a half miles on foot, played in about an hour, give or take. Thank you for having me today. I had to learn what this was about. Nice to meet you. Honestly, I had no idea what I was getting into. Tagging along as speed golf SoCal played around. I had heard about speed golf, but it was time to actually experience it in person. We start the season, uh, it's usually like April through September. So we do it when we get our early morning light. Some guys, like these two guys, uh, I call them our Ironmen. I mean, they'll play uh, year round. So they'll play even through the winter, they'll use glow balls and sometimes like a headlamp and still tee off at 5.30. That's Garland Smith, the founder of Speed Golf SoCal, the local club of the bigger speed golf franchise. Many of the men and women playing are high-level executives at large companies who do this to get a workout in on Tuesday and Thursday mornings before they go into work at the office. Others are super into fitness or just love tough early morning workouts. Get your stuff together and we'll see you over at the pro shop. I want to i probably have you guys go, you go out first. It's golf. Same rules, same course, but time is factored into the score. The goal is to play as quickly as humanly possible, which means sprinting between the holes and shots, no golf carts, no practice swings, with a tiny toned-down golf bag, only a couple of clubs. Everybody hits it once and just keeps going. But the rules are the same. You know, we'll all tee off. All three of us will tee or four tee, and then everybody just watches their ball, and we all jog our ball. So by the time the third person hits the guys are ready to go. You just jog and just, you know, it's not a new Usain Bolt. We're not sprinting down the fairways. Some of our guys are faster, and I'll put those guys out first. Jog is a loose definition of the running, as I'm about to find out, especially about four miles of jogging into it. 
Some of the players are using glow balls that light up because the sun hasn't come up yet to have any idea where their balls go. It'll glow for five minutes or ten minutes, and you're good to go. There are several different technologies. This one happens to be the most like a real golf ball. Eric is among this group out here several times a week getting in a workout. There are no beers in the cart in this game. No 19th hole when it's over. They have to start early because doing it during regular hours would be a problem with slower golfers in front of them. Randy is out here. I have two kids. I don't. I, I got little league and soccer and everything else on the weekends. I just don't golf on the weekends. I love to golf. The only way for me to get more rounds of golfing is to do this. But it just kills two birds with one stone. Not everybody loves the idea. Now they can't tell their significant other that a game of golf has to take eight hours to complete on a Saturday. They can do it in an hour in workout gear and sweat like crazy by the end. How many times have you done this? Probably about ten now. How do you like it? I love it. It's great. I was a runner, played golf. Now I combine the two. Anna is the only woman playing on this day, and we head to the first tee to see how it goes. Getting ready to watch the group tee off and then run after their balls to shoot again. And this is when you do it, right? All right. At first, the run isn't so bad. Jogging on a beautiful golf course early in the morning, up and down some slight hills, resting for the mere seconds between shots, and then taking off again. Yeah, so you just kind of keep an eye on the other guys, right? We usually like to play three because it's just easier to kind of keep an eye on two other guys. Get everybody kind of goes to their ball. Nobody waits. Everybody just goes. Yeah, well, pretty much. Like, you just don't want, you know, we don't want to hit anybody. But no, you don't wait a ton. There's no waiting. Just keep going and keep running. The way the scoring works is your regular golf score plus your minutes. That's how they compete. It's all honor system. Everybody keeping score in their heads. There's no wasting time to write down anything. Pretty good. That's a good par, huh? Yeah. Well, it took about, I don't know, what, a minute and a half or something for that nice par four. How do you uh, shoot normally versus when you're playing speed golf? It's pretty similar. You know, pretty similar. As this goes on, you'll hear me more and more out of breath, and Garland, who actually competes in Ironman competitions, barely showing any sign he's running. All right, we'll see you on the tee box, Randy. So do you play regular golf as well? or is Yeah, this... but we just don't get to play as much anymore, you know, with the job and life, life. I like to surf and snowboard and do some other stuff. So it's just it's hard to get, you know, five-hour round. Tee times are really tough in L.A., but it can also be tough to get golf courses to allow them to come out and play speed golf. Garland says more golf courses are coming around. It's extra money before regular players are even out. There is an audience for it, but it's a little chicken or egg, right? Courses understand that we're not kicking soccer balls around. They're going to make ec extra money, and we go. They're moving so fast, yardage watches are a huge help, running up to a hole and having intel on what they're doing. And if the ball disappears? Yeah, you generally, you know, if you know it went out, you drop another one, take your stroke, keep going. Other traditional golfers who begin showing up for a sunrise round watch, and many have questions. Robinson is a regular at this course. He sees the speed golfers zooming around the course twice a week. Pretty amazing what they do, huh? Yeah, I could. I can't even walk. <laughs> and they run it. So you know how I feel. I feel kind of bad. But what can I do? But walk. Does it feel good every morning, or do you have some mornings that you go, now this isn't what I should be doing? Now, some days you're questioning, got a little ache, a little pain, uh, you go, it was a terrible idea. But most of the time, 95% of the time, it's like, I get done and I'm like, so happy I did. 
Yeah. At times, we're playing through the sprinklers. After nine holes, Garland did offer me a cart, but of course I felt like I had to prove I could run nine more. But I can tell you, as running, there was nothing better than seeing that ball in the grass, knowing we would be stopping for a few seconds to hit and get a tiny break from the run. I like for my good luck charm for some reason. I think I was three over on the front. I bring a driver, a six, eight, 54 wedge and a putter. With sweat pouring down and the legs beginning to burn, I tried to at least keep the appearance of a run as a foursome continually hit and ran. Oh, yeah. Oh. And then he just, just guns it down the middle. Right Rip. Down the middle. So it's a club, right? Everybody pays right. an annual membership. And then I, I put this together, get us really good rates. So you're going to find a handful of traditional golfers go, I dig this, you know? I'm a runner, or I want to be more fit, I want to play more golf. I mean, you talk about hazards. Sprinklers are on, they're playing right through the sprinklers. You're running good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> One thing is very clear to me, it is a workout. I can tell you that by the funny way I was walking for a few days afterwards, the upper legs in pain. Garland would love for the sport to grow. It's popular in some other countries and catching on in the U.S. You know, it's like selfishly I say, I go, I started this thing selfishly so I could play more golf. You know, it's like I found, I felt like I found this almost this cheat code here in L.A. to where, wow, I can come out here and play when the course is wide open. I can also get a workout in. Uh, it just really checks two big boxes, you know, to be able to play as much golf and to try to stay, you know, stay in decent shape and get it all done really early. We're still just playing golf, which is played a little bit different. I slowed them down, but still we were done by 7 a.m. The whole group then would go home to shower and head to work with a game of golf and a four and a half mile run in the rear view mirror. But then these guys' wives, like Randy's wife, she loves me. She's like, thank you. You gave us our weekend back. Randy's back, he's losing weight playing golf. Who's ever said that, you know? <laughs> and so next Tuesday and Thursday, they'll be out in the darkness with the Coyote. It's not a different sport, you know, we're not flinging a ball down the, with a, a, a lacrosse stick, which I think that's kind of taken off in some areas called fling golf. And it's foot, not frisbee. Foot, it's not frisbee, it's not foot golf, it's just regular golf. I mean, I, I'm more surprised because like, this is like more of an Olympic sport than just playing traditional sport in the Olympics, right? <laughs> it's like playing, it's like the biathlon, you know, where they're skiing and then stopping and having to, to shoot a rifle at a target. It's press play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. Are you ready to crack and bam? Some of you already know what I'm talking about, but many have no clue. It's Mahjong, a Chinese tile game that kind of resembles gin rummy. And as ABC's Andy Field found out, it's so much more than just a game. You ask me here. I assume it's not for a Mahjong lesson. For many of us, watching the film Crazy Rich Asians was the first time we'd ever seen anyone playing Mahjong. My mom taught me how to play. She told me Mahjong would teach me important life skills. Negotiation, strategy. It is a tile game that's catching on with high school students. I just kind of fell in love with the game and I thought it was so fun. I was like, I want to play this more. High school senior Sela Nesson runs her Bethesda, Maryland Mahjong Club. It looks complicated. It looks complicated, but it's like once you get into it, people who have just joined get kind of um, 
thrown off by all the Chinese characters. And getting the hang of it can take a while. It takes years to learn. Or just a few days if you take Michelle Hefner's Mahjong Crash Course here at Rockville, Maryland's Jewish Community Center. One and three, and everyone else, you continue around and you take one tile. It is a challenge deciphering Mahjong's secret code unless you've played for a while. The cracks, bams, and flowers embossed in each tile are really just the kings, queens, and jacks of a card deck. And there are so many rules. You're picking from going counterclockwise, but pushing the wall out the other way, the opposite way. We only have 12. You have 12, you need four more for 12. Learning Mahjong is not quick. It's challenging, and it's good for your mind. No clue what I'm doing. (laughs) Many of the women in this packed card table class recently retired. Many grew up watching others play, but were too busy raising families to learn. Never had the time to play before, but now I'm sort of getting ready for the next stage of life. So, you know, picking up golf, picking up mahjong, picking up pickleball. I play bridge, but they play mahjong, so I have to be able to participate. Not everyone needs the remedial classes. Here we go. You guys ready? Here we go. Five crack. Five bam. Four dot. One crack. Is this really relaxing? No. Yes. Yes. No. Wait. No. Take yes. your mind yes. off everything else. <laughs> at all. Right. When you're playing Maj, you don't think about anything else. Joni, Leslie, Susan, and Carol are in their seventh decade. And like Carol Levinson, they've been playing since they were kids. Since I was 12? 12. Yeah, I so. had a junior set when I was 12. A junior a, set? What's the There was a junior, junior set. set. I don't tiles? remember. Um, <laughs> I can't even tell you, but it was a smaller case, so it probably was smaller tiles. All of my nieces, for their shower presents before they got married, my mother gave them all Marshong sets. And we all play. So they have embraced it. They're all in their early 30s, early to mid-30s, and they all play. And virtually every Mahjong player, like that character in Crazy Rich Asians, says Mahjong is much more than a game. Mahjong is my healthy addiction. (laughs) And everything I ever needed to know about anything, I learned around the Mahjong table. Absolutely. Because you go, it's really true. You go through divorces, weddings, births. You go through the whole life life cycle. I mean, and it's just this constant in your life. It's good mentally. It's good physically. You laugh. You have fun, and it's there's nothing really like it. Joni's been playing with some members of this same group for more than a half century. Stand by, because I think that's Mahjong. That declaration when you match all the pairs and straights and three and four of a kind. And by the way, this Chinese tile game isn't that ancient. Five crack. It only became popular in the 1800s, then migrated to the United States in the 1920s. Two crack. The Chinese and American versions are different. Americans have a national Mahjong League that prints colorful cards where the suits, three, four of a kind, runs, just like playing cards change each year. Holding on to that one. There is some gambling if you want, but the stakes for most players aren't that high. The person who threw the Mahjong pays double. And that would be 50 cents. No one's getting rich at this game. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you could join a tournament and make bigger money. Yes. Oh, yes. You can make maybe up to $1,000 in first place. Yep. I have. 
Well, I haven't won a thousand, but I've come in first a few times. Yeah. It pays well. In Mahjong, whether you're just learning. That's a closed hand. In a club. you got a lot of jokers there. That's or someone who spent decades playing. One dot, seven bam. Virtually every Mahjong player says the same thing. It's about making connections and keeping a family tradition. It's the friendship. It's the camaraderie. It also helps your brain, it keeps you functioning, and it gives me a good break from my day-to-day -day life. So it's kind of nice. In Bethesda, Maryland, Andy Field, ABC News. As we've learned this hour, games are definitely one way to escape from day-to-day -day life. But ever wonder what celebrities are doing to escape? We at ABC News Radio wanted to find out, so we caught up with Drew Barrymore, Jenna Elfman, and Guardians of the Galaxy star Sean Gunn and asked them about what has them pressing play these days. I can't say enough about beef. Drew Barrymore's hit talk show has been dark during the writer's strike, but she's been pressing play on some new music and on a hit Netflix show. I know everybody knows it now, but if there's someone out there who hasn't watched it, beef. I watched it when it was like still new and quiet and under the radar, and I felt like I made the world's greatest discovery. I love it so much. That's a great rec from Drew Beef on Netflix. Check it out if you haven't. I'm really into this artist, Dijon. I'm feeling Dijon. I'm all over his music. Talk Down and The Dress are my two favorite songs in the heavy rotation. And maybe Cars Get Your Motor Running. Actress Jenna Elfman, who recently wrapped up the series Fear the Walking Dead, says now that she's home full-time, she's found a way to spend more time with her two sons. My 15-year-old is really into, like, mid-1990s, like, cars. You know, like the, the Toyota MR2s, the Miatas, and all of the, like, souping them up and making them cool and we go to car shows and i'm equally fascinated actor sean gunn who played craglin in the recent blockbuster guardians of the galaxy volume 3 says he's been catching up on some tv and pressing play on sports podcasts during his downtime you know i'm almost done with perry mason which i'm just loving i could i want to inject that directly into my veins i don't know if it's like anything that takes place in los angeles in the 1930s and the production design is that magnificent, I'm right there. And finally, I should also say, I'm a basketball junkie. So I push play on a lot of basketball podcasts. My wife gives me a hard time for it, but uh, I don't know, I love sports. There you go. You're listening to Press Play from ABC News Radio. It's a massive competition that Europeans go crazy for. No, not the World Cup, the Eurovision Song Contest, a yearly event that highlights the best and kitschiest in the music world. ABC's Joy Piazza has been a diehard Eurovision fan for years, and she has this look at why it's so important to so many, and a peek into how fans in the UK celebrated this year. At a pub in South London, I found myself in a place I didn't think I would have imagined a decade ago, belting out a song from the 1990s that was originally sung by an American that won an international songwriting and performing competition that many Americans don't really know much about. Love Shine a Light by Katrina and the Waves won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1997. It's a favorite of my friends, Asifa Lahore and Claudia Coelho, who were hosting a Eurovision-themed party at the Oval Tavern. And they were the ones who got me, an American, into Eurovision nine years ago. We literally broke it down to our favorite songs, winners, 
when it started, why it started, why it's so important. The two things that I remember that afternoon when you first watched Eurovision, you started crying when Conchita was started getting into the chorus and the crescendo of her song. You were just, tears were welling in your eyes. I remember that. And I also remember how impressed you were with the production values. Eurovision in its simplest terms is like if American Idol and the Olympics opening ceremony Vulcan mind melded somehow. Hundreds of millions of people across Europe and other parts of the world tune in every year. It's been around since the 1950s, and it started as a way to unite Europe after World War II. Israel, ladies and gentlemen. There's glitz, there's camp, there's national pride. There are bookmakers placing bets. And there's an intricate voting system, part judges panel, part televote, that could make or break an odds-on favorite. Martin Usterdahl is the head of the contest, and he describes it in another way. It's bigger and it's better than the Super Bowl. Eurovision's popularity is gaining momentum in the States, but when I went over to the UK in mid-May this year, I was able to witness an energy that I've never seen before. I felt like I was watching a sporting event, and fans had very strong opinions on who should win. Finland is who I'm hoping for. I like Belgium. Belgium. And France. I'm with you on Belgium. I think Belgium have a good chance this year. Yeah. I think you've got Sweden, you've got Finland. I liked Belgium. Austria. Austria. Yeah. This year, Lorene, who represented Sweden, came out on top with her song, Tattoo. Before the final, she said that at first, she wasn't sure that she wanted to compete this year. Whenever I say yes, I feel this excitement. It's very subtle, but it's an excitement in me, but also from the people around me. And I'm like... And then I understood, wait a minute, I have to go where it flows. Loreen made history, becoming the first woman to win twice. Sweden is now tied with Ireland for the most wins ever. She told me that the process of creation is what drives her, not the accolades. It just grounds me and I keep that position because I want my performance to be authentic, you know, and for it to be authentic, it cannot be about me. Winners of Eurovision don't get any actual prize money, but they get something perhaps better notoriety. Past winners have certainly made their mark on the music world. Like ABBA, who won in 1974 with Waterloo. This year, Eurovision organizers say five entries broke into the top 200 on Spotify's global streaming chart. But as I found out over the years, Eurovision is, to many, more than just a song contest. Eurovision 2023 was held in Liverpool, the home of the Beatles. I got a chance to see the sheer magnitude of the event and what it meant to Ukraine as the country and its people are still in the fog of war. We know that everyone has uh, hard times and uh, sometimes it feels like it's the end, but you know, you don't don't give up. Have good attitude in the negative situation. That's Andrew, one half of the group Tavorchi. Their song, Heart of Steel, while not a winner, highlighted the struggle and the strength of the Ukrainian people. Which means uh, even if the world is in flames, uh, don't stop, do something. Last year, Ukraine won Eurovision, and traditionally, Ukraine would have hosted the event this year. But Osterdahl says organizers had to do something unprecedented, hold the contest in another country on the winning country's behalf. It's very difficult for us to, you know, to move all the, those people and all, and all that stuff into... Um, a country that is um, under invasion or at war. Taras Homich is a Ukrainian Catholic priest who runs the Liverpool branch of the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain. 
And he says his home country was determined to be a part of the contest this year. Ukraine has shown its resilience. And now it shows that life is going on. Ukrainian refugees who now call Liverpool home say the outpouring of support moved them to tears. Tamila came to Liverpool a year ago as the war was breaking out. She got a chance to see one of the semi-final rounds in the arena. I cannot, uh, cannot keep all emotions inside. It's just wonderful. And back at the Oval Tavern, fans there said they were in awe of Ukraine's resilience. I believe in the power of pop culture. I think a war can't take that away. But perhaps one of the most lasting takeaways from Eurovision is that it strives to not only unite nations, but to represent people of all backgrounds, nationalities and orientations. Quello calling it the United Nations of music. We can learn about ourselves through song. We can connect through performance. I might not understand a single word of what the Slovakian lady is doing, but I connect with the emotion. Lahore and Quello are both transgender women, and they say that Eurovision was one platform that helped them recognize their authentic selves. In the same way that, you know, some people connect with like sports teams and sports games or like, you know, like a type of food or type of music. We, we have made those connections with Eurovision. Lahore, who's known as Britain's first out Muslim drag queen, says that Eurovision played a big role in her coming of age. I just remember this contest, like the glamour, the fashion, the evening gowns. I remember the orchestra at the time and there was this, you know, grandeur about this this contest that was held once a year and national costumes and national languages. Both say that Eurovision has come a long way since then and has a strong LGBTQ fan base. In fact, Lahore and Coelho's event on Eurovision Day and every month at the Oval is billed as an LGBTQ safe space. It's part drag show, part variety show, and it's a place for the community and allies like me to celebrate diversity and inclusion. Esther Sutton is the pub owner. We're all a community. We're all living together. These guys are amazing. They're going to put a show on tonight. Come and enjoy it. Come and be part of it. And come and be a, an ally. Just come and support. For me, getting into Eurovision brought me a connection to a larger world, and I got some great friendships from it. It's about community. It's about acceptance. It's about being seen and it's about celebration respected. it's about culture it's uh, you know it it's about every country sort of bringing their best and it's that celebration of culture that will keep me coming back every may you know there's a lot of bad news there's a lot of hate there's a lot of uphill climbs that we have in this world but there are people who are promoting the the good Joy Piazza, ABC News. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? 
I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. It's Press Play, the show that's all about the different ways we play, what play means, and what it does for us socially, physically, mentally. This hour, we're going to play some lacrosse, play with some pets, but first, we're going to play pickleball. Two years ago, when we launched Press Play, Pickleball was at the heart of that first special. I had just started playing, and in that first dark and lonely year of the pandemic, the sport with the wiffle balls and funny name became a refuge for many. A place to be social, get exercise, be outdoors. And in two years, Pickleball has changed a lot. We're at a pro event that didn't exist two years ago, Major League Pickleball. This event here in Orange County, California, is one of six this year, and the team owners drafted 96 players to make up the 24 teams. Team owners, including NBA star LeBron James, future NFL Hall of Fame quarterbacks Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Patrick Mahomes, tennis champs Naomi Osaka and Nick Kyrgios, country music star Dirks Bentley, Heidi Klum, billionaire Dallas Mavericks owner and Shark Tank star Mark Cuban. How many billionaire owners do you have? I think it's around 20. That's Steve Kuhn. And I am the founder of Major League Pickleball. And he's a billionaire himself, about 14 times over. I think we have 30 gold medals, two World Cup titles, a few Academy Awards, Grand Slam tennis titles. I think we might have 100. Like, it's, our camp table is kind of fun. It's kind of ridiculous. That's one of the biggest changes pickleball has seen in the past two years, just rapid growth on the professional side. I've said that we're on our way to being a top five sport in America, which means on a level with, like, say, NHL and MLS. I think that's coming. I think it's coming sooner. Are you talking about in money, in viewership, in what? All those things. In viewership, in media rights, in terms of seriousness that the sport has taken. Yeah, we're, we're taking it a lot more seriously than we were two years ago. The sport with the silly name is serious business, says Ron Saslow, co-owner of the Major League Pickleball team, the Chicago Slice, and also co-owner of the Chicago Cubs. He invested a nice chunk of money in the MLP, and he's not here to throw it away. No, absolutely. And there's two parts of pickleball from the business side. There's a side that has shoes and paddles and shirts and hats and everything else that is doing great these days because the amateur game is growing like crazy. Mm -hmm. But there's also the professional side. So we're invested on both sides. From the professional side, it was a little bit more of a gamble because nobody knew for sure that people were going to want to watch it live and watch it on TV or streaming. And uh, we're glad to see that that wasn't the case, that tons of people like to watch it on TV and streaming and come watch it live. Cameron Blackwood says she's seen that TV and streaming interest firsthand. She's a sideline reporter for the Major League Pickleball broadcast. We're on FS1, we're on ESPN, so CBS Sports. We're really everywhere and ABC as well. And so it's just, it's so amazing to see that it's resonating well with an audience across the screen. I think that was what people a little bit nervous about. Tennis resonates, is pickleball going to translate over the screen? And we're seeing that it is. People are starting to watch in bigger and bigger numbers, and MLP founder Steve Kuhn says that's because pickleball is on the path from sideshow sport to the mainstream. One thing that some of our celebrity owners, like people like LeBron James and Kevin Durant, 
and Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. One thing that they did through their investment and through their ownership was said, said, you know what, it's okay to play this sport. It's cool. Ben Johns is the top-ranked men's player in the world, and he says the influx of money into the professional side of pickleball has definitely changed things. The facilities are better, the, the venues are better, uh, the exposure, the sponsors, basically all-around treatment and how serious of a pro sport it is has very much increased in so many ways. The money better, I would assume? Yes, for sure. Um, appearance fees, prize money, MLP money, it's, it's all definitely increased um, significantly. That's certainly the case for his mixed pro doubles partner, Annalee Waters, in a sport still thought of by many as tennis for old people, she's 16 and far and away the best women's player. It's not even close. Word is she could earn over a million dollars this year between tournament winnings and endorsements. When I first started playing pickleball, it was something fun to do. Even playing professionally, you didn't take it that seriously. You just kind of went out there and had fun. Now I personally have a mental coach. I have a personal trainer. Uh, definitely work out all the time, off the court. So it just shows you how people are treating it more like uh, any other kind of professional sport and not just like as a fun thing. You can treat it as a fun thing if you want, but definitely see a lot more people treating it as their job. Annalee Waters is the second youngest player in Major League Pickleball. Lee Whitwell is the oldest. I'm not 19, 20, you know, coming into this sport. I wish I was. How old are you, can I ask? Is that a okay to ask? Or? I'm pickleball 49. <laughs> Practically a senior. <laughs> so sad. Whitwell was a college tennis star and briefly a pro before accidentally discovering pickleball six years ago. So my friend asked me to play in a tournament and I said, sure, thinking it was tennis. She told me it wasn't tennis, it was pickleball. I said, no. Why would I play something my grandma could play? You know, we went through, she tried every everything, and then she's like, Lee, come on, I'll buy you a case of beer. So literally a case of beer got me to play pickleball and changed my life. What kind of beer? I hesitate to even say. It was Coors Light. Whitwell tells me one of the biggest changes she's seen in the past two years is the competition level increases and egos get bigger, and a sport once known for its camaraderie, players are talking a lot more trash to each other. There's definitely a lot more chirping and not in a fun banter way it's more i'm trying to get under your skin and a lot more barking at each other on the court instead of you hit a good shot and it's like yeah high five your partner you turn to your partner and you're like you celebrate with your partner it's more a fist bump in your opponent's face what's your favorite thing about playing pickleball the chirping having fun with that yeah definitely that hayden patrickoin is 17 the youngest male playing in the mlp i mean some of, some of the haters probably think i'm a <laughs> or like whatever but i don't it's just for me to have fun. and No, everyone knows. All the players know. I don't, the fans, they don't know. It's fine. That's another thing that's changed in the past two years, the fans and how loud they are. Yeah, that's right. Love it. Lisa had her cowbell ready to cheer on the pros that up until this point she'd only seen on TV. What's your favorite thing about watching it and being here live to see it? Oh, just the excitement, how fast they speed it up, the rallies, how long the, po the point goes. It's so amazing, yeah. You, just you have pickleball earrings, too. Yes, I do. <laughs> I kind of like pickleball, can you tell? <laughs> so what's next for pickleball? Many want to see it in schools with permanent teams. That would then become a feeder for the pro leagues, especially if there are college scholarship opportunities. MLP founder Steve Kuhn is working on that, lobbying in D.C. to try to get funding. And sideline reporter Cameron Blackwood says the holy grail right now. I would hope the Olympics 2028. I know we're probably not going to get there in 24, and that's okay. But I think if we keep this momentum up and start making the right changes to make sure, again, that the fans back home through the screen are, are falling in love with it as much as playing it, that's where you know we have to get that. And we have to get some other countries on board. And I think once we do that, we're locked in. The 2028 Olympics are happening right here in Southern California. And if pickleball makes it in, 
you can be sure that as your unofficial ABC News pickleball correspondent, I'll be there to cover it. Mike in one hand, pickleball paddle in the other. We're going to take a deep dive into America's oldest team sport, which is now one of the fastest growing across the country. ABC's Rob Hawley is headed out to play by picking up a lacrosse stick. Whenever those arguments arise about who the greatest football player of all time might be, it's a good bet the late and very great Jim Brown's name comes up. The Cleveland Browns running back was a pro bowler every single season he played. And after just nine years, he retired at the time, holding the league rushing record. And yet, he also said he'd rather play lacrosse six days out of the week and football the seventh. You know, we play lacrosse for fun and we make a living with football. <laughs> <laughs> so six days of fun and then one day to make a living is not bad. But let me say this to you. Uh, lacrosse is special. There's nothing like it. And the game has grown because of the game itself. Two teams across from each other on a field. Armed with sticks with a small net at the end. Man, he shoots. Scanoni makes the save. That was a hard shot. Passing and shooting a rubber ball that at times is flying at speeds approaching 100 miles an hour. Chris Gray, a rocket from deep. Brown, one of the greatest ever to play when he suited up for Syracuse University, speaking years ago to the Tuaraton Foundation. When people uh, get involved in it, they fall in love with it. And we form a fraternity. And that fraternity is based on the positivity of playing lacrosse. His fraternity of lacrosse players from kids starting so young. To the pros, whether it's the indoor game of the National Lacrosse League. Redemption and the Bandits are 2023 NLL champions. Or playing on the big fields outside. In our 2023 season, the PLL is underway. Lacrosse growing by leaps and bounds. Now one of the fastest growing sports in America. One of the best ever, sitting down with ABC News. Paul Rabel, co-founder and president of the PLL. Starting the Premier Lacrosse League just five seasons ago, and already... We've grown the audience from 15 million in North America to 45 million. Smith, beautiful dodge, puts it away. Beginning with a novel idea, a tour. All the teams traveling together, hopping from city to city, playing each other over the course of a weekend, and then moving on. But now it's time to really unlock an environment where fans that aren't familiar with lacrosse can choose their favorite team and invest in this league based on the location of the team. For Rabel, this isn't just a business, isn't just a sport. This has been life. I've been playing the game for 27 years. I just retired a couple of years ago, but I still have a stick in my hand. Not long before he stepped away from the game. Got the shot away. He scores! Record territory. 644 points, the most in pro lacrosse history. His commitment to the game, common across just about anyone who has ever picked up a stick, including some of the stars in his league, like the Redwoods' Ryder Garnsey. Garnsey buries it! My life has had lacrosse at the center of it, really, since as long as I can remember. Chaos! midfielder Troy Ray, whose dad played in college. I started playing in fifth grade with uh, our town rec team and kind of fell in love with it from there. Several we see today chaos and it's Troy Ray. These guys can And Christian Scarpello from the PLL champion Water Dogs. I had a stick in my hand before I could walk probably. And it's not just a life of playing but giving back. People who play lacrosse feel a responsibility to spread the game and to spread the love. Brian Silcott is VP of Sport Growth and Development at USA Lacrosse. They believe it's a great thing to get other people playing. And, and you see it 
with the PLL. You know, Ryder Garnsey will score six goals in a PLL game. Another goal for Ryder Garnsey. His career day continues. When he comes off the field, he genuinely cares about the kids he's talking to. Troy Ray, when he's not on the field, works with kids through the PLL Academy. Working with, you know, all different club teams, whether that's travel or rec uh, across the country and just giving back to the younger generation. And Christian Scarpello following in his father's footsteps and this year becoming a head lacrosse coach at Chatham High in North Jersey. There's times where I'm out here hey, you gotta be an outlet. Uh, watching my guys have success. <laughs> This season as a first year head coach and, and taking down some really big opponents has been nothing short of amazing and things that I'll remember forever. His guys in good company, says USA Lacrosse's Brian Silcott. There's a little over a million people that participate in lacrosse. The large bulk of those are, are youth players. Like the boys of Columbia and Boston Spa Lacrosse Clubs. I love lacrosse because but it's something fun to do. Making good plays, trucking somebody. And girls like Claire Frank. I have bruises yeah. all over my arm. <laughs> because unlike the guys, when she takes the field with her team from Cahos, New York, like all the other girls and women's teams, she's not wearing any pads, and she wouldn't mind if that changed. Definitely, because then I feel like we could be a little more aggressive than we are. Along with growing the game, there is a push to expand it as well. It has been a, a wealthy sport, uh, upper middle class. Brian Silcott at USA Lacrosse. Jeff Harvey, head of the Tuaraton Foundation, says that decades-long legacy was born out of where the sport found itself. The best prep schools even today, where, where the game began in the modern world in the late 1800s, it was Exeter and Andover and St. Paul's and New England private schools that ended up picking up this sport, which is, is part of the history. And it was not intended to be an elitist sport at all. But it did become that because that's where it was played. Eric Matthew runs PLL Assist, trying to help change that. Making sure that we're engaging with, with local communities, uh, donating goals, making lacrosse more visible, more accessible. And maybe the most important background of all, the very people who gave us the game. We say, who do you know Shoney? Rick Hill is a founding member of the lacrosse team made up of Native Americans, once called the Iroquois Nationals, now the Haudenosaunee Nationals. Its teams consistently ranked among the best in the world. And for Native Americans, this is far more than a simple game. This has spiritual origins. And that lacrosse stick and that ball and the teams, that's what it represents to us. Uh, think of it this way. Lacrosse is the spirit of this land. And that's why I think the game is so significant to us. It is a game with roots that go back thousands of years and carries no less a name than the creator's game. We have stories that tell us that it was the creator who invented the game of lacrosse. He was playing against his brother. They're trying to decide who's going to have rule over this earth, the good-minded creator and his not-so-good-minded brother. Uh, so they played lacrosse, but, you know, they played it to a draw. Nobody could win, and there's something, a, a teaching in that for us. It's not magical. You never know. You might win some days, you might lose the other days, but it's it's being in the play, that interplay, as that ball goes back and forth, I think that's what the, makes it exciting for us. Rex Lyons, citizen of the Onondaga Nation, part of the Haudenosaunee, played on the first Nationals team back in the 80s. When you're a male and you're born in the Haudenosaunee community, you're one of three things. You're either a speaker of the language, which means you can carry on the ceremonies, singer of the songs, which you need for our ceremonies, or you're a lacrosse player. That's how fundamental it is. As we were talking. I'm going to go grab my stick because it'll help when I have my stick. Because for the Haudenosaunee. We go from cradle to grave with our stick. This stick here is my stick. 
it'll it'll be buried with me. For within the stick is story, beginning with the hickory used to create it. In the early days, they used to use the sinew of the deer to make this weave. You know, now the deer, he's the leader of all the animals because he's on every continent. But now you have all of the, the, the animal nation represented in this stick. Now this traditional weave here, those are the clans weave woven together, linked together, the families, the eel, the, the snipe, the heron, the turtle, the beaver, all, all linked together here. And the ball is the medicine. So now you have everything all encompassing nature in concert to play the creator's game. That idea of the game itself as medicine, going beyond the Haudenosaunee to virtually anyone who picks up a stick, Ryder Garnsey. When I'm having a bad day or, you know, I'm a little bit stressed out about something that might be not lacrosse related, that is my go-to is to go play lacrosse and shoot or play wall ball for a little bit. It just, it brings me so much joy. And Christian Scarpella. Whenever I step on a field, it kind of, I don't look at my phone and it's almost just like a moment of peace. Played at its highest level, Paul Rabel says lacrosse can be a symphony of scoring and speed. A writer for the Baltimore Sun called it the fastest game on two feet, and that stuck with this game. But at its deepest level, America's sport from before there even was an America, Rex Lyons reminds us, it is a game for us all. Playing for the joy of the game, win, lose, or draw. That's the gift. For ABC News, I'm Rob Hawley. When you think of fishing, you might think of one of the thousands of pristine lakes or rivers in the country pulling out bass or trout. But ABC's Alex Stone is about to take us on an urban adventure for some unique fish in Los Angeles. It's a story that might make you hold your nose. Well, good morning. It's 3 a.m. right now. We're getting the early start on this. It's hours before the sun comes up, and I'm heading out to go fishing. Nope, not looking for trout. We're going fishing today for sewer salmon or dumpster dolphin. You've never heard of those? Oh, just wait, because you and I are in for quite an experience. I would argue for most people who live here in Los Angeles, the L.A. River is thought of as essentially a sewer, a flood control channel. It is highly polluted. Most of the water is residential and business runoff, along with 35 million gallons a day of treated wastewater. It's littered with trash and homeless encampments. It was once a natural river, but in 1938, in an effort to prevent flooding, most of the L.A. River was encased in concrete. The now mainly concrete river flows along freeways, ending at the Pacific Ocean. The sun is coming up right now, Lino, uh-huh. and we are standing overlooking the LA River. Yes. And I think a lot of people are gonna say, wait, the LA River, isn't that that concrete drainage basin that goes it, through, it through is. LA? Meet Lino Jubilato, an LA River fly fisherman. This is where he catches his fish. He's here several times a week along the freeway. I used to come down here and fish all the time when, when it was actually fenced off, like it was closed to the public. Years ago, it became legal to fish in the LA River. The fences came down, but everybody has to do it at their own risk. Just kind of work your way out here slowly. Shopping carts all over. This is rocky here, so just be careful. The water and the shoreline are littered with hidden shopping carts rusted underneath, clothing, beer cans, everything you can imagine that would be dumped into a storm drain in the street makes its way here. Even looking right here as the sun comes up, an old shirt. I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. Some pants. Underwear, it looks like. Oh, yeah. Like I said, you could... You could put together a full wardrobe in this spot. He's actually not kidding about that. He went out with a female angler a while back fishing the L.A. River. 
and the carp they pulled up had a woman's bra covering its eyes. It was the it was so hysterical because this bra was covering the face of the carp and it just quit. But it didn't end there. And it was a purple bra. So, you know, that was funny. We laughed. Uh, Victoria's Secret bra, by, mind you. And a couple of months later, I'm fishing over here and I catch the matching panties. What are the odds of that? A purple? Go. I'm not even kidding. Do people ever tell you you're nuts? All the time. Oh yeah, but for some reason people are fascinated with the idea of fishing in a sewer um, because it kind of is. There is a lot of the water too. I forgot to mention is from runoff. To get this this river gets runoff from the sewers. And so Lino agreed to take me out fly fishing. He'll take just about anybody out to show them fishing and show them the LA River. A big smile on his face. He wants to show the hidden gems that he finds in this water. So I put on waders and we venture out into the river, dodging shopping carts and old cans of just about everything in the water. Oh, stinky. At points, it reeks of terribly strong methane gas between what's been put in the water and what grows in it. Walking in the water kicks up the gases trapped in the algae, putting off a putrid smell of rotten eggs. We're going to come out just a little bit here. There's fish right here in front of us. Wow. Using his fly fishing rod, Lino loves to teach, and that's what he does for me, teaching me the basics of fly fishing and letting me try to catch one of the massive carp in this water. They can be 20 pounds or more here. He is routinely pulling out big fish using the fly rod and tiny flies that he makes at home. I honestly enjoy this. Like, I feel like I'm fishing right now. <laughs> You're waiting for you to experience that moment and, and bring one to hand. I honestly feel like I'm actually doing it. Set, set the hook, set the hook, set the, set the hook, hard, 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 hard. Lino's day job is a nurse at a private elementary school. He used to work in social services. He went to graduate school at the University of Southern California. He loves showing his craft. In fact, based on his presence on social media and YouTube, he's a celebrity here. As we're fishing, two other fishermen show up and recognize him immediately from YouTube. Something that happens rather often. Yeah, that was on YouTube. The, the one I catch and cook. He did eat one of the carp for a video, but Lino doesn't usually cook these fish. He catches and releases them. The quality of the fish with what they're eating and what's in the water is suspect, but some people do eat them. For Lino, this is about the thrill of the hunt and teaching the skill. I got my first fly rod when I was 12, I think. Yeah, and I've had it, you know, I've been kind of off and on since then. Yeah, I've been fly fishing a long time. And there are the crowds that show up to watch him do his unconventional work catching sewer salmon. I was fishing here, I caught a big fish, and that thing took me a good 15 minutes to bring in. And I'm like, oh my God, that's a big one. So I was just taking my time. Finally, I get it there, and I kept trying to net it. I kept missing. And I was like, man, I was getting frustrated. And finally, I got it to the net. As soon as I put it on the net, in the net, I hear this clapping and cheering and I turn around and there that whole top of the um, overpass there was fire trucks were lined up and they were all standing there watching me fish and they were all yeah and I was holding it up and they were taking pictures from the bridge oh that was a big one that just jumped out of there all around us as we're standing in the water giant carp are swimming by our feet they're jumping out of the water as dumpster dolphins as Lino calls them but they're not biting his fly. We tried for six hours. There were a couple of nibbles, but not much else. It just makes the days when you actually catch something so rewarding. Um, yeah. But that's true for any species, you know? Set, 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 set. You want? 
You on? I don't think I don't oh. think anything's there. Oh no. For Lino, it's about showing anybody who's interested what it's like to fish the LA River. Even Jimmy Kimmel found him and had him take him out on the water. It's something I never dreamed I'd be doing, standing in the flood basin that I drive along every morning and watching fish swim by. It's nice just to be out, you know, in that anticipation of hooking on to something, especially in this river that is is just it's just gonna keep you coming back. And then when you catch one, then it's then it's over because then you're going to be wanting to try something new and get better gear. Do you ever have days that you're out here and you think this is crazy or is it beautiful every day that you're out here? Every day. This is my favorite time of day right now, the morning. It's gorgeous. Um, yeah. And I, and I come out here in the afternoons too. It's just, um, I mean, just listen to this. It's how, how peaceful it is. It's, it's so nice. You know, in the moments when the, on the freeway when you don't have to hear, hear that motorcycle in the background. <laughs> It's like, you know, you, you thought you would think you're in just any river. Glad you're still playing with us. This next story, it's a little rough. Summer means time for many kids to play at camp, but it's not just human kids. ABC's dog mom, Daria Albinger, shares with us her search for the perfect place to play for her pups. Jason, by now, summer break is a few weeks in for a lot of kids. And the daily trips to the pool, the park, the beach, wherever you and your family go, well, they may be getting a little tired. And it's only a matter of time before you hear those two dreaded words. I'm bored. Yeah, it's the same thing at my house. Except my children have four legs and fur. Meet my dachshunds. Cooper, age 11. He's an angsty preteen. Cooper. The toilet paper, not again. And Honey, who's two? Honey, get your head out of the garbage. Leave the garbage alone. She's a toddler. Need I say any more? So, unless I want to go broke buying TP or trash bags, I need to come up with an idea to keep my fur kids occupied this summer and beyond. Destructive behavior is something that it's, it's like a pent-up energy. It's a dog that is really trying to find an outlet. And, and so, yes, a bore dog is a dog that's going to get into trouble. That's my vet, Dr. Carrie Garcia, at Reed Hill Veterinary Clinic in Morganville, New Jersey. Dogs are creatures of habit. They love routine, and summertime is perfect for routines to be changed. You know, kids are home, parents are home, or vice versa. If everybody's traveling, kids go to camp, so routines can get changed. Doggy camp, dog daycare, those are really good ideas. Dogs are social animals. They're, they're pack animals by nature, so they, they like to be around other dogs. Dog camp? Seriously? My dogs can't stand to be away from mom or dad. They don't have to spend the night. They go for a couple hours and come home. The people that run the facility will help ease them into it. Mm -hmm. Put them in a room with one or two dogs, match the energies, and just build the confidence a little bit. And it can be a total game changer. Okay, I'm willing to give it a try. So we start with checkups, just like when you send your kids to camp. Because Dr. Garcia reminds us there are some health concerns to keep in mind. You're in a multi-dog environment. So parasites, dog fights, um, diarrhea, stress colitis, those are all things that are normal. It happens. After both Cooper and Honey got clean bills of health, we started looking for the right camps. The first one we checked out was a weekly Saturday morning meetup at Bansone Park in Paramus, New Jersey. We got started early, bright and early, with coffee for the pet parents and a group walk for the pups. So all we want to do is make a loop 
If you don't already know, I know some of us already know us. Just make a loop with your index finger in the loop. And as we got to talking to the other pet parents, I realized my situation is far from unusual. She acts up. She goes crazy. We let her in the yard. She runs around. We call it the zoomies. Mm -hmm. She runs for about 10 minutes, right? And then you can't catch her. And then she just also collapses. He would sit outside if he could all day, but we can't do that. So he gets a little bored inside the house sometimes. He looks very aggressive to the dogs, but it's not clear he wants to be because, like, when he got away from Suzanne, he got to the dog. I dropped the leash. He got to the dog, and they were playing in the street. Okay, I feel a little bit better. And then we meet the trainer, Frank Puglisi, with Behavior Plus in River Edge, New Jersey. And he introduced us to the counselors, if you will. This is Axel. This is Mac. All right. Our dogs are trained to work around other dogs. So if we walk close to you or we go near you, I don't want you to worry about it. Okay, they're not going to do anything. If one of your dogs snaps at these guys, uh, if he snaps at Mac, Mac's going to run back in the car. <laughs> you know, basically, dogs are, are, are like kids, right? They get bored like they're kids. They're permanent toddlers. Think about the dogs as exercise, discipline, affection. Think about draining the dog's physical energy and then doing some training to drain the dog's mental energy. And then they'll settle quietly. Can you train any dog? Yeah, you want exercise first. You want to drain the, the energy from the body. You want some type of, of structured discipline, some type of training. Mm-hmm. And that could be paw, sit, down, fetch, anything like that is training. Yeah. Right? And drain the dog mentally. And then affection, which is basically food or play or whatever you guys do. If you can give a dog an hour's worth of exercise a day, mm-hmm. 15 to 20 minutes worth of training, you end up with a balanced dog, a relaxed, calm what is the big mistake? I mean, I, I, one thing that comes to mind, you know, my husband and I are like, Mommy, Daddy. The, do that's we, the biggest mistake. The do biggest we human- mistake try to humanize is them, humanizing right? the animal. Rules are everything. Rules and boundaries. Set up your rules and boundaries. This is what's allowed. This is what's not. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you'll get all the affection you need. That tough love approach works with a lot of dogs. Coop ate it right up, or maybe it was the hamburger that he got on the way home. Either way, we found a camp situation for him. Honey, on the other hand, had way too many distractions, so we needed to look for another type of camp for her. So the following Saturday, she and I enrolled in the Doggy Day Camp at PetSmart in Secaucus, New Jersey, where I told trainer Haley Carianzi what we needed to work on. Honey gets bored a lot, and when Honey gets bored, Honey gets into trouble. Honey uh, gets into trash. Honey eats toilet paper. Honey will chew pillows. She wants to be on your lap. Or right next to you. The first thing I can tell you is mental stimulating exercises are the number one key. Things that are going to attract her attention like puzzles. Uh, Snuffle mat may be something that she likes. You uh, put her kibble in there or engage in treats so that she can find things. What's the first thing they need to learn? Look at me. Not sit, not stay? No, those are considered like trick trainings. They're still commands, but the foundation is look at me first because you want to make sure the eye contact is very strong between you and your connection with your dog. Can I try? Yeah, of course. Honey, 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 look at me. So what you want to do is you want to take the treat, you want to tap it to her nose. Okay, all right. Honey, 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 tap it to her nose, draw it to your forehead. And with a little practice. Honey, 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 look at me. Oh, you see how that one time you drew to her nose, she automatically knew to come to your forehead. Honey? And she said. Honey, look at me. Good girl. After that, it was time for her to have some supervised play 
without mom. Afterwards, Mika Del Rio, who runs the daycare and the pet hotel at PetSmart in Secaucus, told me how she did. Honey, maybe like at first, just a little bit shy. Yeah. You know, it's a new environment and we get that from a lot of our first timers that as soon as they're, you know, they walk in, like, I don't really know what's going on. And as soon as they get in and they realize it's a fun environment and there's people there to give them love and Mm -hmm. attention as well as play, then she was all good. And I even put it in here. So we have at Doggy Day Camp, we have what we like to call poggers reports. We give them out to parents. It's a little culmination of their behaviors, their favorite things that they did that day. For Honey, it was fun and games. She was having fun. She was just walking around, getting a feel for the place. So no timeout. She was doing good. She did actually make a few friends as well. So she was kind of walking with the pack. So summer camp it is for both the fur kids. A few weeks later, Coop is learning some basic agility with his group. And Honey, well, she's got Look at Me down pat. The trash cans, they aren't nearly as enticing. And we don't have to stock up on toilet paper quite as much as we did before. So suffice it to say, we are happy campers. Jason? Thanks, Daria. And whether it's puppies or pickleball, it really doesn't matter how you play, just that you play. The National Institute for Play has a three-step plan for getting play back into your life. First, identify your play personality. Are you a collector, a competitor, a creator? Step two, figure out how you like to play. Is it social or using movement? And third, just try something fun. They say as long as you aren't hurting someone, there's no wrong way to play. Thanks for pressing play with us and can't wait to play again next year. Press Play was presented by ABC News correspondent Jason Nathanson and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. 